Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Crypto News Podcast. We are buzzing as always, and I'm super pumped to have today's guest on the show. Today, we have Scott Shapiro, the Senior Director of Product Management at Coinbase, where he leads a team that builds Coinbase's trading products for consumers. Crypto has been a passion since Scott first discovered Bitcoin in 2013, and this drove him to leave almost a decade of building advertising products at Facebook and Google, ever heard of them, to join Coinbase, also ever heard of it, in 2019. Super pumped to have you on, Scott. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me. Scott, you are located in beautiful Utah, the one of the best snow capitals of the world. You guys also just hosted All-Star Weekend for the NBA, the which used to be the best on best defense and, and showing the world what it's like now. It's just a let's throw threes from everywhere on the court and do some crazy dunks. That must have been a treat. What is life like living in Utah and how was All-Star Weekend? Uh, Utah is awesome. We've um, been here about two years full time. We had visited plenty and every time I visited, I asked myself, like, how can I live here permanently? I love it. Love the mountains. Um, kind of the ease of getting around relative to the great skiing and hiking and mountain biking, um, which there's lots of places in the U.S. and Canada where you can do that, but a lot of them are hard to access and hard for people to come visit and don't have infrastructure like schools and, and healthcare that you'd want. And so this just checked a ton of boxes for us. And once Coinbase, where I've been now almost four years, went fully remote, this was like a mid-2020 decision by the leadership team to make all in-person work optional. My family, we started discussing like, where where might we go? Uh, we've been in California pretty much our whole lives, both of us. And um, this was one of those places that that popped back up because we had such great memories from visiting. And so uh, early 2021, we made the full-time move and uh, have been here since and have been loving you know, the combination of outdoors and you know, the city life in, in Salt Lake City and, uh, you know, the proximity, we're only about a thousand miles from California. So it's an easy, uh, short flight. Like, what's it like? And again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big city boy. I was born and raised in Toronto and I've only spent very small stints in, in places like Utah where you're literally a stone's throw away from just incredible nature, forest, hikes, skiing, biking, you name it. What's it like being able to just wake up in the morning, hammer out some work and be probably like a 20 minute drive away from just infinite nature possibilities. It's amazing. You know, every time I, I do something new, explore a new trail, um, ski a new resort, I'm just like, you know, disbelief that that this is all here. We have gigabit fiber to our house, so we're like fully plugged in. Uh, you know, no matter the weather, it's, uh, you know, as good a connection as we would have in, in, you know, in San Francisco where we lived for over a decade. And it's even better than 20 minutes. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff within a 20 minute range, but even in our neighborhood, there's world-class trails and we've had so much snow this year. We've been able to ski, backcountry, touring, ski, uh, a lot of the hills behind our house and in the neighborhood. And uh, the other thing you find is, um, you know, one of the memories I have in San Francisco is you're out at a restaurant or a coffee shop and everyone's talking about their term sheets or the latest um, <laughs> you know, funding around some other startup. And that's just the kind of culture. You go to the rock climbing gym. I used to go to Dog Patch Boulders and uh, in San Francisco, and everybody would be wearing their like tech swag shirt from their startup or from you know big company. And here, it's kind of like the the kind of identity people have is like where they ski, where they mountain bike. Um, you know, what so is the last cool. like adventurous thing that they do? And so it kind of permeates everything. 
Um, and we actually do have like a fair amount of people here who are full-time who are also working tech and some of them working crypto and there's a nice little tech community here. So it's a different kind of balance than, you know, I had in the Bay Area for a long time, but uh, it's one that I'm, I'm really enjoying. I love that. Probably, uh, probably not as many crazies on the streets as well. I've, I've never been to San Fran, but I've only heard the stories from, from my friends who are there and they say it's absolute bananas in San Fran. Like the, uh, the human feces on the ground, the needles, the craziness that's, I'm sure there's none of that in Utah, or at least very little of that. There's different parts of the state, and you know, Salt Lake City is like a very urban area, and I think, um, uh, you know, faces some of the same challenges as, you know, New York and San Francisco right. and, and LA urban areas. Um, I was back in San Francisco. We had a, a great team offsite there in mid December, and I hadn't been for about a year to the Bay Area. So that was like the longest stretch that, that I can remember uh, of not being in, in the area. And I loved it. It was great being back. Like there was great energy. And I think a lot of the stuff that's on Twitter and, and kind of the- Not as, not as bad? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, it was quieter. Like you didn't feel the same kind of buzz of people walking around downtown, but I felt safe. I went for runs and, you know, did a lot of, you know, dinners out and like there were lines out the door and bars and restaurants and it was great. Let's, um, we definitely ought to talk about your days at Facebook and Google. But before that, you got to tell me about your crypto- inception story. You discovered Bitcoin back in 2013. I wish I did the same. Well, I guess I did as well, but I didn't uh, I didn't utilize that back when I was in, I want to say first year uni in 2013. I would bet on Bodog, which is just like a, you know, a classic betting site. And I had hundreds of Bitcoin in because at one point a friend was like, hey, you should maybe, you know, they give you a crazy multiplier where it's, you can get paid out in Bitcoin or you can get paid out in Canadian or US dollars. And I listened to him once and then I ended up transferring all of that Bitcoin back to CAD. So you can't win them all. Everyone has a story like that, but walk me through your sort of Bitcoin inception story in 2013. Yeah. I, you know, I was a, a hacker news reader back then and, and still am. And I remember people would be posting about blockchain and Bitcoin. I just didn't get it. Like I would see those headlines. It would just kind of like go over my head. Um, I was more focused on like, what are people saying about Facebook ads and you know, kind of my, my day job, that's what I was looking for. And uh, a colleague who sat across from me, like we were kind of face to face the way that the open desk floor plan was set up there at Facebook was one day just like rambling about blockchain and hashing and mining and, and Bitcoin. And finally, you know, had the dialogue where I could actually understand something about this and you know, he said, go to Coinbase, you can buy a Bitcoin. I did, I bought a Bitcoin for $20 uh, <laughs> to my bank account. And I only got one uh, in early 2013. So this is now just over 10 years ago. It was February, 2013, which is hard to believe. So it's been a decade. And didn't really do much. I would just, you know, kind of trade in and out of positions. Um, I'd always been interested in trading. I was trading stocks in high school and remember doing in like junior high, those uh, like paper trading competitions where you would, you know, pick stocks and see whose you know, portfolio was up the most. Looking at in the newspaper, right? Because that's where you got stock quotes, but this or anything was online, um, you know, back in the 90s, uh, early 90s. And um, he actually wasn't, you know, he, he kind of poo-pooed, he was kind of too smart for uh, crypto. And he's actually now doing a Web3 startup. So this kind of comes full, full circle. But for a while it was like, um, you know, crypto is this kind of thing that's, you know, not intellectual enough Um but I went down the rabbit hole and just got really interested. And the thing that really spiked for me was in the fall of 2013, um, Ross Ulbricht, who uh, was you know allegedly behind the Silk Road and was you know, con you know ultimately convicted, 
was arrested at the Glen Park Library in San Francisco, which is somewhere that I'd been and was around the corner for me in San Francisco. I was living in Burl Heights and Glen Park is like the next neighborhood, the next, um, you know, train BART station uh, over. Uh, and that, at that point, I was like, wow, this is this is real. And that is actually the moment when the 2013 rally kind of kicked off. And wait, that's that was the event that sort of kicked it off. From what I remember, it was like October, it was like fall 2013. And that was one of the, one of the, you know, several bull runs that, you know, Bitcoin has experienced. And I think it, it just brought a ton of awareness, right? Even, you know, the, the kind of no, no press is bad press kind of thing of like, this was one of the first like major worldwide headlines about crypto, um, you know, for nefarious purposes, but had, you know, kind of made, made some splashes. The thing that really caught on to me was I remember reading the DOJ, um, complaint against Ross and the parallel with my day job was that the way that he was effectively doxxed was through joining different identities that he had used across different forums and, um, you know, in the Slope Road. And um, that was something that we were working on at, at Facebook at the time in advertising around joining identities across cookie spaces and PII with at the time I was working on a product called Facebook Exchange, FBX, and it was a sister product called Custom Audiences, and these were all ways to join identities um, before you know privacy was was what it was, you know, with GDPR and everything today. Um, so that really like struck several chords with me at the time. Uh, a couple years later, Ethereum uh, came out. I was also trying to do some mining at home. We had solar power on our roof in San Francisco, and we weren't using all that power. <laughs> I can uh, maybe do something with this, but quickly. You know, hash rate, uh, global hash rate got too big, difficulty got too high, and my you know USB miner was useless. Uh, you know, very quickly. But it was it was fun those early days of kind of messing around and trying different things. Um, hardware wallets, you know, came out soon after the DAO hack. Uh, you know, that was my first experience being exploited, um, and you know the, the recovery wasn't too bad. The Mt. Gox hack. Um, I was got an email this morning, you know, for the one Bitcoin that I had in the Mt. Gox exchange that. Uh, one day, maybe you know, we'll see some return from that, hopefully this year. Um, so th- those early days were pretty fun and wild. That's crazy. So if, you're, if your sort of um, teammate at Facebook perhaps would have never discussed Bitcoin, I'm sure with you being in the Bay Area, working at Google and Facebook, like you probably would have been exposed in some other capacity. But without him, you never know what could have happened. Yeah, that's definitely true. But even you know, in 2017, um, I left Facebook at the very end of 2017, and there was a big bull run in 2017. There was really not that much interest. Like the, a lot of the colleagues I had working at Facebook and Google and you know some of the biggest tech companies in the world um, are focused within those ecosystems like very specifically and are not um, kind of looking outside at newer things. When I ultimately left to join Coinbase in 2019, I just got the strangest looks on people's faces. Like crypto, crypto died a few years ago. Like how are you joining? 2019 because it died in 2018. They probably thought you were a Looney Tune doing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's too funny. So working at Facebook and Google, again, that's like, you know, half of university grads want to join a world-class um, company like, you know, like those guys, tech company rather. And we've all heard the stories. I have friends who work at Facebook and Google. They always talk about the, the free lunches and the craziness and the training and sort of the EQ test and all that kind of stuff. And I'd love to get into some of that, but more importantly, as a marketer myself, you built some of the biggest products that the everyday consumer uses all the time. I'd, I'd love if you could walk me through some stories about what you built there, 
And one little just caveat on my end, coming from an e-commerce background, a stat that I find so intriguing that I'll never forget. There's never been an e-commerce unicorn that has scaled to a billion dollar company without using Facebook ads, which I'll never get over. That one single product, Facebook and Instagram ads, without that, there will never, there has never been a billion dollar e-commerce company. Like it's crazy to think that some of the products that you built, that you and your teams built are so friggin' bloody important. Like, did you ever think that what you were building at Facebook would have such power and, and, and implications like it does today? You know, we had clues of this. I remember in 2012, so I joined Facebook in 2010 as an intern and then converted in 2011 full-time when one went into grad school. And in 2012, that was the emergence of a lot of these really interesting targeting products that today are just foundational for e-commerce. Uh, things like remarketing, retargeting, like that didn't exist really at, at any scale. Google was, was kind of kicking things off. But that ecosystem flourished in like the early 2010s and it's kind of gone through a couple cycles. Uh, but in 2012, we were trying to convince everybody in you know direct response advertising, which is where you know e-commerce and other verticals play, and they just did not take Facebook seriously. And I remember talking to <laughs> um, one large travel advertiser in 2011, and, and just trying to learn about how they budget and how they spend. And they're like, "Yeah, Facebook is like the office in the in the basement next to the parking lot. Like that's kind of where we think of, of Facebook ads, right?" And and you know to hear what you uh, I hadn't heard that statistic before, but wouldn't be terribly surprised if that's true because today it's just so table stakes for for large e-commerce businesses. Were there were there any crazy stories or like aha moments where there was one instance in particular where you were like, holy shit, this is this is really working? So I think the the thing that I remember like kind of eye popping the most was we were living in a very web desktop world, you know, in twenty ten. Like that decade started where like the internet was a desktop phenomenon and, you know, big full screen browser and mobile grew faster. And, you know, there was the, um, you know, infamous Q1 2012 quarter at Facebook where we just saw a huge shift to mobile and our mobile ad product was not ready. Um, and this was, you know, gearing up for the Facebook IPO. Um, and that was like the first time the company had like not experienced the level of growth that it had experienced in its lifetime. Uh, in that in that quarter, and so we pivoted it, you know, so much energy into making mobile work. Where where I kind of um, you know experienced my eye popping moment there was we had been doing um, retargeting, right? So you're looking at a pair of shoes, and that shoes uh, that same pair of shoes is now showing up in ads on different websites. Um, that was kind of the original like retargeting, you know, anecdote. And but it would always happen in the same browser, right? So you would be on your laptop in your Chrome tab, and you'd be going right, you'd see it there. And because people are logged into Facebook on their phone, their tablet, computer one, computer two, you know, personal computer, work computer, um, we were able to stitch all those identities together and say, we know you were, you were browsing on laptop one. We can actually show you an ad for something you were browsing on there on your mobile phone. Um, you know, today, this is table stakes, but the first time we did that, we just saw like the craziest click-through rates and conversion rates <laughs> and advertisers who were trying this. I remember piloting this in you know, different countries around the world, uh, just like heads explode because this was so novel. And again, today, it's, you know, we have this identity graph that is just incredibly powerful um, you know, that lots of other companies now have too, and it's mattering less and less today because people are generally mobile only in the way they experienced you know, digital things. 
Uh, but at the time, it was you know phenomenal. Oh, I love that. The the thing that freaks me out today is when I'll you know talk about a you know no free ads, but shout out Blender Bottle. You know, I'll talk about a shaker cup, and ten minutes later, I'm on uh, you know whatever Twitter, Facebook, Insta, my laptop, and a Blender Bottle ad shows up. I know there's this big sort of rumor mill going around that you know our phones are listening to us. When did this start happening? Because I don't really remember this until I want to say three, four years ago. Perhaps it was present longer than that, but the general pop just wasn't cognizant. But what's the whole deal with that? And 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 if if you can't answer this, we can we can skip over this. But I know this is something that everyone is curious about. Yeah, I think what what we don't realize is that our kind of digital footprint of the things we search for, the things we click on in all the different surfaces that we're engaging, not the things we're like saying out loud in like random rooms, all those are developing intense signals that all these machine learning models at Facebook and Google and Twitter and you know the largest you know ad platforms um, are using to figure out what you are most interested in and what you will want to see. And so oftentimes, if you really, you know, if, if it's your, the ad for the bottle that you're getting, chances are that you did something explicitly in digital context that expressed some intent and that platform was able to infer and show you, you know, some of all the content based on that. So this happens, you know, to me too, where I'm like, wow, how did, how did I get a Facebook ad for that? And I like try to reverse engineer, like, what did I do up to this point? Did I search for something? Did I like click on an email marketing newsletter for something? Did I like engage with some, you know, tweet in an interesting way and, and saw something on Twitter? Like it's all very tied to that. There is definitely, uh, at least when I was working in this industry, no listening and kind of like, you know, uh, tapping into, you know, the microphone or anything like that. Oh, I could talk about this forever. Let's get into crypto though. Let's get into the fun stuff. The space where you and I are currently working. You work at Coinbase, probably the biggest blue chip crypto company in the world. Very reputable, safe, publicly traded, just the creme de la creme. Doesn't get more blue chip than Coinbase. You obviously left two of the most famous companies in the world, Facebook and Google, to join Coinbase. I would ask you why, but we all know why. It's a great opportunity. But what you and the team are building at Coinbase is super cool. You and the team are running up advanced trade, tons of crazy tools. What are some of the most fun tools that you built so far on advanced trade? And I guess to start off, just for our listeners, give us the sort of the you know the quick spiel on what exactly is advanced trade as well. Yeah, for sure. So in you know the almost four years I've been at Coinbase, I've worked on all sorts of different retail products, and one of the things uh, across you know our portfolio of products where you can spend, like Coinbase Card, products where you can earn yield um, and, and rewards, like our, our staking products and USDC. Uh, one of the things we've heard is that we, um, you know, have this audience of advanced traders, right? Of people who want to be super analytical, who want to, you know, have six different screens with different price charts and move in and out of positions, you know, very very quickly. Maybe even build their own applications, you know, using an API and you know automate some of the you know quant trading. And we heard that we weren't doing enough for them. That there was more that we could do, even though they were satisfied at kind of a base level. There was more that we could do. So. Over the past few quarters, we've really tried to dial up our investment in advanced trading and products for advanced traders. And so we we launched uh, Advanced Trade last year, which is our future direction and kind of where we are today for serving that audience. Some people might remember Coinbase Pro. Before that, it was called GDAX. And that was a product that was very standalone, very separate. 
from the rest of the Coinbase experience. And so you had to download a separate app or log into a separate website. You had separate balances. Not all the payment methods worked where you could you know, deposit and withdraw fiat. It was just a very focused, minimalist experience. And so what we heard from people was that they wanted this to be more integrated with the rest of the Coinbase experience. They wanted, for example, to be able to stake Tezos or Solana, uh, which are two of our stakeable assets, earn rewards on those, and be able to trade in, in and out of those positions. And because of the dynamic that we had been in with a Coinbase app and Coinbase Pro app, you had to make a choice and say, I want to either trade that currency or I want to stake that currency. You could do both. And so we've solved that problem by merging all the functionality into the one, you know, Coinbase Blue app that you can have. Also, you know, for us, like we, we don't have two apps competing in the same category, the finance category of the app store, right? Why, why would we want to compete with ourselves when we could just deliver one great product where you can do everything um, using that same login, same balance, same payment methods, um, same p- portfolio of, you know, a couple hundred uh, tradable assets that you can, you know, deposit and withdraw. One thing that I always find so interesting, uh, and again, I have not built products to the extent and scale that you have, but whenever you build an incredible product like Advanced Trade, you're always going to get people up your, you know what, being like, Scott, I want this feature, I want that feature. How do you and the team decide, like, you know what, we're going to actually give you this one, but we're not going to give you this one. Like, is there a specific framework or workflow or like, how do you decide what to give and what not to give? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great like product management 101 question. Um, you know, I've been working in product development for many, many years and uh, it's tough, right? Because your, your team, right? We work with engineers and designers and researchers and we have all sorts of signals, right? We have users on Twitter. Crypto Twitter is very popular, you know, in this world. Um, those are very vocal folks. Um, we have, you know, a Reddit community that's very active. Um, we've even developed an internal, what we call customer council, where we've kind of hand-selected some really savvy, you know, customers of, of Coinbase who we think can provide really high signal. They're kind of like a sounding board. I love um, that. That's and, awesome. Uh, and then we also have like in-product surveys. So if you're using Coinbase, you might see something pop up that says, you know, rate your experience one through five. What can we do better? Um, you know, what are you satisfied with? What are you de- dissatisfied with? And we're always looking at how we're trending um, on that one through five scale and what is the actual feedback saying. And so we really try to take all these signals very seriously. And then as product managers, working with our designers and engineers, try to pick the things that are going to help make people the happiest. So what are the features that are going to lift the tide for the most number of customers and solve very specific problems for them? And again, that's kind of product management 101. In a, in a you know, Coinbase trading context, we try to look at our really our core segment and saying, okay, we're, we're focused on very active analytical traders. We want to move in that direction. We need a product that's intuitive, but super powerful. Like it can never be too powerful, um, but it also needs to be reliable. It needs to be performant. It needs to be you know, low latency. And how do we then juggle like improvements to latency, improvements to reliability, brand new features, you know, improving existing features like that is the challenge. Uh, there's never a right answer. It's much more of an art form. There's not some formula where you can just throw everything in and we get the answer. But we try to use all those signals that we're getting. We do a lot of internal dog fooding. Dog fooding is a kind of a Silicon Valley concept of like, if you're selling dog food, you should be able to eat your own. It should be tasty enough for you <laughs> yourself. So when we're, whenever we're building products, before we release it to the world, we use it internally and say, okay, we're, we're traders. Like we're allowed to use the, the product to trade. Like, do we enjoy this? Do we think it's bug free? Is it high quality enough to actually give to, you know, all the Coinbase users out there? Um, so that's a, a kind of quick answer on the process. 
angle of, of prioritization. Oh, I, I love that. It's something that I feel like there's still no universal blueprint for in regards to what features to, you know, how do you listen to your customers? Like some companies do it better than others, Coinbase being one of them, but there's still, I wish there was a, univer- a universal blueprint that just said, you know, here's the workflow, this is what you should do. Um, Scott, we got to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about a couple more features that traders are looking for and any trends in the space. But we got to give a huge shout out to our sponsor of the show. This podcast is brought to you by R Staking the decentralized staking platform, which creates its own liquidity pools. The overall liquidity pool of our staking is already more than 1 billion USD. There's a fixed 25% per year on more than 200 tokens and crypto coins in nine networks. Rewards get paid very quickly every three hours in USDT or BUSDT tokens. Since 2019, our staking is considered to be one of the most secured blockchain companies in the world as the company created a standalone and secure product that strictly is focused on staking. Speaking of stability, our staking offers 25% per year with the possibility of self-closing and rewards every three hours in two phenomenal coins in USDT and BUSD. Anyone and everyone can register with our staking, receiving 10 RHIN tokens free of charge where you can open your first stake. Our staking is the platform where everyone will find a suitable token or crypto coin for themselves. Register and start studying our staking right now at rstaking.com. Again, that is R-S-T-A-K-I-N-G.com. Huge shout out to our staking. And now back to the show with Scott. Another thing that I find incredibly interesting is the number of trading platforms that there are. There, I would say there's probably thousands, if not tens of thousands. Um, I have friends who use like niche platforms that I've never heard of just because they got in early and perhaps get extra bonuses and yields with their native coin. When it comes to sort of the blue chip companies, the Coinbase's, the Binance, and of course, all the other Asian exchanges, how do you guys sort of stand out, right? Not, not on the brand. Obviously, you have the brand, which is huge, right? Everyone knows that if you have your coins on Coinbase, you are going to be safe. You are not going to get hooped. This isn't some crazy non-regulated exchange. It is the most regulated crypto product and service in the world. But brand aside, how do you guys sort of compete and differ and provide extra utility from the other massive exchanges? That's a great question. That's something that we ask ourselves all the time is like, how do we stand out? What is our niche? How do we differentiate? And I think at the foundation, it's, you know, start to what you said is that, um, you know, we think we're the most secure, we're the most trusted. We have a lot of the infrastructure that a lot of other exchanges might kind of gloss over. We don't do things like lend out user funds or use them for our own purposes. And (laughs) I think that's that's something that was maybe underappreciated prior to you know, 2022. Uh, and it's something that, uh, you know, we take very, very seriously. We have a world-class security team, a world-class finance team, world-class compliance team. Oftentimes, some of those experiences might feel challenging for users, but they're really there to keep everybody safe and everybody, you know, compliant so that Coinbase and, and all of our users can succeed. So it really starts with that. That's, that's a huge differentiator that when you want to withdraw your funds, you know those are backed one-to-one and you can withdraw them and they will be there. And again, that's something that is easy to take for granted when you're looking at like the app at the service level. Um, but there's such a huge iceberg underneath the service um, that we have allotted. I think second to that is when you think about the landscape of assets and liquidity and order books is, you know, we, we leaned into listing assets 
um, that we think are interesting to people. And so this varies around the world, right? What is a new asset in one country might not be a new asset or a new order book in another country, but we have tried to you know, lean in that direction and give people the tools for them to understand what those assets are. We launched a feature last year called Experimental Label. And so you will see if an asset is brand new and it's less proven and we're not sure you know, uh, where it's going to go, we will put the experimental label on that asset to give people some information. We've also experimented with things like reviews on assets, letting users describe what they think of assets so users can learn from each other. But that kind of principle of, of offering lots of different assets and having that diversity, particularly for advanced traders, is something that we've taken seriously. And so looking at some of our competitors in areas where we are you know, compliant you know, with, with everyone else who's also compliant to those areas, we think that you know, we have some world-class liquidity and depth and a lot of different assets. And then I think the other area is around payment methods. And a lot of people take for granted the ability, for example, in the U.S., to be able to instantly deposit you know, tens of thousands of dollars, depending on your personal limits, be able to trade that and to be able to withdraw that and use it in DeFi or something else off-platform, you know, very quickly. So those are, you know, kind of the next layer of things. And then I think with advanced trade, we're truly trying to build a world-class product uh, where people have access to, you know, very advanced charting. We have over 100 indicators in our charting library and several different types of candlesticks and lots of abilities to, um, you know, to annotate and draw uh, and share those charts and you know to do that across multiple monitors, to do that in a very you know performant mobile app on the go, you know that's been very important for us. Uh, we still have a lot more that you know is in the pipeline that we're going to add there you know over this year to be able to use you know different order types. We have you know three order types: market limit, stop limit, and advanced trade. And you know there's more that we're you know hearing from users that are interesting, and more that we know could be valuable until we're we're figuring out you know how and when we want to do that. And so innovating at that top of the stack is something we're working on too. But we also spend a lot of time on those layers underneath that are kind of less visible and harder to appreciate until you really need them. Yeah, the fundamentals. No, that's uh, that's so true. What trends are you seeing in sort of the advanced trading space? Because like me, as a very average trader, like can I draw on charts or can I use some TA, of course, but you know, I'm a pretty simple guy. If, if, I, if I think coin goes up, I'll ask for it to go up. And if I think coin goes down, I'll short coin. It's very simple. But for a lot of the pro traders, which I can't really relate to, are there any trends that you're seeing, like not even really features that they're asking for, but just sort of actions they're taking or not taking? Like what trends are you seeing in the advanced trading space at the moment? Yeah, you know, I think just to zoom out from that question for a second, you know, we started as a platform for simple traders, you know, this before I joined Coinbase. And that's always been kind of our core audience. And so it's totally fair for somebody to be, you know, someone who just wants to buy and hold, who wants to do dollar cost averaging using recurring buys. Who wants to exit positions? You know, once with a um, kind of fixed price quote sell order. Who wants to convert from Bitcoin to an altcoin? You know, we want to make that very easy, and we're definitely not trying to force people into becoming advanced traders at all. So, uh, we want that functionality to be there for people who seek it, for people who might graduate into it. But by no means is that the default or that we're trying to force people into. And when I look at some of our competitors, like they are sometimes more that direction, and they look at the kind of easier experience as the exception. So we're kind of, you know, inverted sometimes. In terms of the trends for advanced trading that we're seeing, I think one thing is we are just seeing a lot of people graduate from, you know, basic buying, selling, converting to advanced trading. And so figuring out how do we help guide them when they're ready and give them the tools, not lock them in. Again, because your balances are portable and unified across all of Coinbase now, you can dabble in advanced trade and say, you know, maybe that's too much for me. I want to go back 
or no, I want to go all in and you know, your funds are already there. You don't have to do anything to, to go and use that. So that's that kind of unification and you know, portability is really important to us. There's obviously the assets that we've been talking about. And I think we're also seeing a shift towards just overall like technical sophistication too. So we're seeing lots of people who are interested in not necessarily building their own trading bots using APIs, but some people want to maybe build their own dashboard and want to pull data on you know, transaction history or order status and see are there orders filling in, in their own kind of dashboard using um, their own scripting. And so we've been investing more in our API to be able to help them do that too. We're also seeing you know, more interest in things like algorithmic order types. And this is something we've invested on in our institutional product, Coinbase Prime, so that you can do what's called uh, time-weighted average price, TWAP or VWAP, value-weighted um, types of orders if you're moving you know, positions on books that are less liquid relative to the size of your position. Um, so that's something we're exploring and, and trying to understand the needs of um, you know, retail consumer advanced traders that we're working on too. So lots of different angles here, but I think overall we're seeing like an interesting secular growth in, in advanced traders. My buddies and friends who are advanced traders, the one thing that they're all beyond fired up for is options trading. And I know we're, a lot of people are saying that it's going to happen this year, where the whole sort of options trading in crypto will go mainstream. What's your, what's your two cents on that? And me personally, Scott, I'm, I'm sort of, I don't want to say it scares me shitless, but like, I think that with the amount of risk and leverage in crypto, offering a, another incredibly high risk and levered you know, option, in the mix, just adding something, adding more bananas to the mix. I just think that, I don't know, perhaps it's a little no bueno, but what's your, what's your two cents on that? And uh, what's your time frame? When do you think we're going to see options trading go mainstream in crypto? That's a good question. It's been uh, both in centralized, decentralized platforms, something that has been around for a while, actually. Like it's not that new. I think one of the coolest products in uh DeFi, this ribbon finance, they've been doing options, vault strategies, kind of structured finance approach. Um, you know, it's super interesting. You have, uh, I think they're using open OPYN, and they might be using something else now to kind of build on top, right? So the composability of DeFi is really interesting there. Um, some of our, you know, other centralized exchange competitors have options. I think one of the challenges is that, and this exists in like equity options market as well, or futures options market is, you know, getting critical mass of liquidity is really hard. And so, Options on Bitcoin, sure. Like Bitcoin is kind of like the S and P index, uh, <laughs> it, where you have like or the Nasdaq index, where you have like lots of liquidity. But then you start to go towards individual, you know, stocks, and you look at options markets there, and you have like pretty wide bid asks, and you have all sorts of expiration dates and all sorts of strike prices. And so, how can you build like healthy liquid markets in options trading? Like that's definitely a big question. We've seen in the derivative space a lot more growth in futures and perpetual swaps. Uh, mostly in an unregulated context because it's easier to consolidate liquidity there. And even so, most of the liquidity consolidates around, you know, Bitcoin and ETH, and then maybe, um, you know, a handful of other, uh, you know, kind of torso-sized um, assets. So options are, you know, to your point, they are high beta uh, in a lot of contexts yes. and <laughs> also be used as like very good, you know, covered call is like an interesting hedging strategy that, People can use selling naked options is a much more risky strategy in general, not crypto, but just you know the options world in general. And you know how you handle margin and how you handle risk and how you handle liquidations; those are all really important things, you know, for trading products to figure out. So it's something that we're looking at. We think it's really you know fascinating. We have nothing, you know, no, no plan specifically to share, you know, with any derivatives, but it's something we're watching, you know, very closely. Oh come on, Scott! You're not gonna you're not gonna break some news on the crypto news pod. Um, 
I might. <laughs> now the PR team would kill you. Tell me what's what's next for advanced trade. I know you guys are whipping out new products. It seems almost weekly. What uh, what do we consumers have to look forward to? This episode will air early March 2023. What do we have to look forward to? You know, next couple months and sort of for the rest of the year. Yeah, you know, one of the tracks we've really been investing in is since we launched advanced trade towards the end of last year, we've really been focused on just making it better. And how do we take the jobs people are trying to do with advanced trade and make it a lot smoother. One of the things we, we launched a couple of weeks ago was uh, a feature called sticky chart settings. So what we found is that people want to customize their indicators very carefully, the, you know, the candlesticks they're using, the intervals that they're using, and they want to repeat that for the five markets that they're looking closely at. And whenever they change, they want to see the exact same settings. And so before we launched that feature where people would have to like reconfigure their chart settings every single time, it might take 10 clicks. And so we've removed all those 10 clicks um, so that people can scale this out. And that's just one example of like quality of life improvement that we think people are really happy about. We've seen some great feedback on that feature. Specifically, there's a lot of other things. You know, another one that I don't think I'm, I'm sharing too much here, but that we're rolling out right now is a uh, dark mode by default. So we heard from a lot of advanced traders. They're like, I don't just want dark mode at night when my system settings kick it on. I want Coinbase to be dark mode for advanced trade all the time because that helps me with contrast and charting and you know, looking at the order book and a depth chart and everything else. And so we are in the process of rolling that out so that it will be dark mode by default. And then if you don't want dark mode, you can easily toggle into light mode and move away from that. We're also trying to, uh, this is a little bit of foreshadowing for you, trying to make it a more immersive experience. So we've heard from advanced traders that they one of the things they liked about Coinbase Pro was the amount of focus and minimalism that it had even though that came at the expense of other things. So we're trying to bring some of that back to give a more focused experience to advanced traders. And we're still working out exactly the details on how that's going to land. But we think that that's going to be a lot of fun for people to be able to just like feel more immersed uh, in advanced trade while still being able to access all the other things that Coinbase offers, you know, in a single out the website. Love that. Scott, you've absolutely crushed this, man. This has been too much fun. I know we're getting a little tight for time. Last question and our last segment on the show, the Hot Take Factory. You and I put our shit kicking boots on. We jump in the Hot Take Factory and we let a couple hot takes fly. Give me a couple Scott hot takes, things that you believe in, whereas most other people don't. Doesn't have to be crypto or finance or blockchain related. Can be health, wealth, happiness, food, space, AR, VR, AI, you name it. But give give the listeners what they want. Give us a couple Scott hot takes. Yeah, I think the biggest one, this is kind of a trend I've been on for a long time, is around... Uh, you mentioned health was, I think, the first type of hot take you mentioned is uh, I, I've done a lot of like health experimentation and where I've landed is really around like kind of a more ancestral paleo type of diet uh, as being optimal. And it's been interesting seeing, you know, over the last decade or so different trends emerge that are kind of pushing on that. And there's an interesting overlap with the crypto community, too. You have like some crypto people who are like very outspoken about like ketogenic or carniv carnivore diet. Uh, which has been, you know, this is this is something that I've done, you know, before crypto existed. So it's funny to see those trends kind of converge. And you also have things like this kind of set of, you know, narratives around like seed oils being dangerous is something that I've, you know, embodied for a long time. And now it's kind of become mainstream, but not really mainstream, more of like Twitter, you know, mainstream. So it's been funny watching that evolve. But still, whenever I, you know, speak to healthcare folks about diet and look at, you know, the uh, government recommendations. It's um, bananas. It's absolutely that insane. I, 
Yeah, then I'm like very inverted on. So it, it's crazy how much you can learn if you put in, you know, a, a good hour on crypto. On, on Twitter, excuse me, every single day. Like when I was in high school, I started curating my Twitter feed and you know, I, it's one of the things. Twitter is probably the platform that I would pay the most for. I'd probably pay a hundred bucks a month for Twitter, if not more, just from all the things that I learned. It's not even so much for the news curation. Like I don't go on any, you know, traditional news sites or watch the news. It, it all comes from Twitter, but just having the having the ability to tap into the minds of experts for free is just like, it's absurd in my opinion. And and how people, how everyone doesn't create lists in their Twitter feed to optimize their health, wealth, and happiness. It's just like, I personally don't get it. But again, I'm preaching the choir here. Yeah, Twitter, it's a great tool. I think you know, that there, there can be misleading information. And like anything, it's like a free open ecosystem that one has to apply their own lens to. And there's some really interesting um, stuff happening in Web3 that I think is going to apply some of the kind of solutions to some of that. Uh, you know, well, one part of Vaughn that's really interesting, I've been using a lot is Farcaster, uh, started by an ex-Coinbase uh, set of folks. Um, and they're kind of, you know, really embodying like the protocol and client um, disintegration in a way that I think is going to, you know, enable some really powerful use cases. Just some kind of more open, open type of environment that it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, um, you know, the next few years. Scott, what a treat, man. Had so much fun. Really appreciate you coming on and uh, would love to have you on for round two. Uh, before we let you go, can you please let our listeners know where they can find you and Coinbase? Everyone knows where to find Coinbase, but for the plug, you might as well. Where everyone can find you and Coinbase online and on socials. Yeah, so I'm uh, the website, scotttipiro.com. And I'm also Scott Tipiro on Twitter, on Reddit, and uh, on Instagram, Scott, I think it's scott.tipiro. Uh, but all, all my links are on my website and obviously Coinbase is coinbase.com, uh, Coinbase on Twitter. Amazing. Scott, thanks so much, man. Truly a treat. Uh, super pumped for you and the team. And um, thanks for making us all look good because, you know, we need a couple more Coinbases in the space to sort of crank up that uh, reliability, trust, and, and goodwill crypto narrative. So appreciate what you guys are doing. And uh, like I said, pumped to have you on for round two in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much, Pat. Folks, what an episode with Scott Shapiro from Coinbase dropping knowledge bombs left, right, and center, and some great stories back from the Facebook and Google days. If you guys enjoyed this one, please do subscribe. It would mean the world to my team and I. Speaking of the team, love you guys. Thank you so much for everything. You Eustace, my amazing sound editor, appreciate you as always. And to the listeners, love you guys. Keep on growing those bags and keep on staying healthy, wealthy, and happy. Bye for now and we'll talk soon. Mm-hmm.